0: You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. You know, this campaign season our leading political candidates have said that they want to make some game changing investments in infrastructure in a nation that is deeply divided. on so many fundamental issues, the need for these huge infrastructure investments is seemingly the one place that we have a consensus at strong towns. We understand that America's approach to growth and development is bankrupting our cities. And this begs the question, if we're committed to spending more money on infrastructure at the federal level, How do we do it in a way that actually makes us better off? To answer that question, between now and the election, we're featuring the thoughts and ideas of local leaders, not the people who are going to be handing out the money, but the kind of people who will actually make this approach work if it's going to. Today, we turn to one of my good friends, a guy who we've had on the podcast a couple times before, and you may remember him. Uh, He is formerly of Martin County County in Florida, and now has moved, along with his beautiful family, up to Ranson, West Virginia, the assistant city manager of Ranson, Edward Erford. Edward, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great. Thanks, Chuck. It's always a pleasure to be on.
0: Hey, talk a little bit about that transition. You guys, I think, did some amazing work down in Martin County, and, and I was never hesitant to talk about it. Uh, but I know the politics down there got to be more than a little difficult, did the department get totally disbanded? Is that what actually happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, politics, this is kind of the fourth dimension they don't teach you about in school, but the county commission decided to go and, and essentially play politics and work against the residents of the community redevelopment areas that we were managing. And it really fell all apart in a in a public meeting when our budget came up where we had all fully funded projects that were they were paid through by tax group financing it was money in the bank so there was no borrowing involved they had complete community buy-in and they met all the strategic goals of the comprehensive plan and of the county commission and during the budget hearing the majority of the time decided that they wanted to play politics were surprised all these projects came forward and killed the budget and essentially one day killed out 4 Multi million dollar projects in the heart of these redevelopment areas. And we had done all of the return on investments, and these were worthwhile projects, not your typical just repaving projects. These are projects that were lined up with private investment that was going to come in with the development. From that time, the department, the small department we had, we all looked at ourselves and said, Well, if we can't do what we know how to do, and we can't follow what the community wants to do, this isn't the place. Essentially, the entire department quit all within just a short, as soon as we all got jobs. So within just a few months, the department, everybody quit. We went other places. On the bright side, a year later, there was an election. The areas that we had projects that were killed, we actually had residents that lived in those neighborhoods that in the past were opposed to redevelopment and opposed to the redevelopment program. They became pro-redevelopment agency advocates, pro-redevelopment, pro-reinvestment in their community, pro-change. They all ran and they all upset the incumbents. Even on top of that, two of the areas we worked in, if you walked in the neighborhood, you would think it was its own town, but it was part of the unincorporated area of the county. Two of those areas utilize the work that we were doing in the redevelopment area and use the redevelopment vision plan to actually file with the state two months ago for the ability to incorporate. It's sad that we had to break up. We had an incredible team, and we're doing great projects. and, And I became very good friends with all the residents in these areas. I mean, it was a real pleasure to work with them. And it's a shame we had to be broken up for them to have this emergence and really uh, grassroots development come out. But this is happening now, and it's it's positive for those communities. And there'll be another set of folks that will come in. All the tools are there for them to be successful and for these communities to actually be self-sufficient.
0: I think the thing that was fascinating to me, or or maybe frustrating in, in retrospect, is that This was a group, you guys working in Martin County with Kevin and and the rest of the team, these were people who were pretty dedicated to the return on investment notion. The projects you were doing and the the kind of attention to detail and just the the ethic you brought to it, very different than I saw in a lot of other CRAs and and a lot of similar organizations around the country where they're really about doing projects and having the ribbon-cutting and maybe that was part of the problem at the end of the day is that, you know, you guys were, were more about doing things that actually made sense financially and made sense for the people there as opposed to, you know, grease the political skids to make everybody everybody look good.
1: Yeah, I mean, Chuck had come down, you'd come down a couple of times to do curbside chats and, and I don't know, everybody knows, but at the same time he's also working with Memphis and you helped to put together – what we were doing on paper. And you helped to put together to describe what we were doing as a redevelopment team. And we infiltrated every aspect of local government within the county. So we had folks that we were working with where we would infiltrate into the engineering department or infiltrate into the fire department. All those different groups that are obstacles for doing urban infill redevelopment, we got them on board and we pulled them forward so we could get projects approved. And it was a collaborative process. And we were very successful. The amount of development that we were doing and the things that we were asking developers and builders to do, you would be laughed out of the room in most communities. But we were able to get all the national brands to meet the design requirements and build the street when we proposed a capital project. So if this was a sewer expansion, if it was a sidewalk project, We wanted to show a return on that investment because the redevelopment agency was funded through a growth of the tax base. And every project we did, we could show, even if it was an affordable housing development, we could show 500 to 600 percent increase of value in an area within two years of that project. And these projects were fiscally balancing themselves out and generating an enormous tax tax rate in the last year budget for the county they had a shortfall of i think it was like $250,000 they were actually able to adjust the tiff rate so they took the money from the cras to balance the budget and that the budget number they set it at and the TIF revenue generated for that year was consistent with the previous year. So the projects that we had invested in within these CRAs had generated a $250,000 TIF increment growth in those areas, not to mention the additional tax base. It took us some time to kind of explain this and work this out. And we did, we were able to attract people from all over the country to come in and invest and develop in probably one of the most anti-growth, hyper-environmental development areas in the country. I mean, very difficult place to develop, but by showing people and working them through the process and every project enhancing the next layer so that when we did a project, at the end of the day, the citizens saw an improvement or betterment in their community or their way of life. And they didn't always believe us when we first presented the project, but we built that trust up. We used the idea of neighborhoods first, right at the forefront of everything we did, and trying to just get the low-hanging fruit. And many times, because we were the people that actually did the roads, and we had all the heavy equipment and could buy the asphalt, what started out with sketching out a, a paint project, you know, striping something on the street, Actually led to more physical improvements in a community by the time we implemented it. So it's that—that's the model we followed at that redevelopment agency. Within 8,500 acres, I think that we had expended out close to 10 to 11 million dollars worth of development projects within that area, and many of those years, those monies we received at least a 50% match in other funding sources, whether they were grants or private development actually contributing to the public infrastructure that did not include the matches of people actually physically building stuff on private property.
0: Talk a little bit about Ransom. I remember when you made this this move and you know, you're a person who's lived all over the country. I just went through this huge family trauma moving my family twelve miles. <laughs> you've made some larger moves than that. Talk a little bit about what brought you here and a little bit about the city. What, what it's like being the uh, assistant city manager there.
1: Yeah. So the move, I definitely was looking for a move somewhere and I had no idea that I'd move further North. I really thought I'd be doing stuff in Florida because I'd spent 10 years down there doing all different types of development. And I was introduced to this little town and, Ranson itself is a population just under 5,000 people. It's a it's a small town, we're just outside the D.C. Beltway, so we're nestled in the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia, and John Denver's song Country Roads. We're the area with the mountains and the Shenandoah River, so that's the iconic scenery we have here. And I had some friends that in 2012 came up. They received a, a grant actually write a citywide form-based code for this little town. And at the same time, had some development projects and some major infrastructure projects come in and start to develop in this little town. And I kept hearing about this and, and thought it was neat that a small town was doing this. And then every couple of years, you know, the next year I heard, well, now they've received money for this. And actually, one of the Tiger grants I applied for in Florida, we lost out to Ranson. Very same type of project, but they, they were able to get that money. I was looking for a new job and was told, well, you need to go and talk to this city manager that is probably one of the, the brightest and uh, most innovative city managers in the country that's running this little town. And I sent my resume up. And my portfolio and, and kind of some of the things that I that I had done and, and things that I wanted to do, it must have been within 24 hours I get a phone call from the city manager. And he said, well, you, you need to come up here. And he told me about some of the things on the phone. And he really wouldn't let me hang up until I agreed to come up and, and take a look at this city because he had been recruiting for different positions. And it, it's difficult in this area to, to kind of attract folks because there's a lot of prejudices and preconceived notions of what this area of the country is like. So I came up and this city talking to the city manager and looking at their comprehensive plan was essentially a strong town. Every policy, every podcast, every blog post that showed up on strong towns had been discussed and worked out and implemented in the city of Ransom. And I was, I was absolutely shocked. The entire zoning code was not based off of Euclidean zoning. They used the form-based code, but it was all based off of a fiscal model that all new development that came into the city had to pay for itself. So the types of zoning and the lot sizes not only emulated the historic center of the town, but all new development also met the financial balance so that when roads would eventually get turned over to the city, there was enough tax base without raising people's taxes to support that infrastructure. Even though we are an auto center, once things were built out, you didn't have to have two cars or you didn't even have to have a car. There is the ability as the town grew up over time that through design, we could alleviate some of those pressures. So, I actually came up here and it was, you know, within an hour or two of talking and getting the full grand tour. I I said, this is, these are my people. This is the type of work that I want to do. And there's a a town council. There was a mayor that was mayor for almost 30 years up here advocating for this work and a whole team within the city that really, this is one of those places when they said they need to do a new project we call it the public works, and the public works go, guys go out with the equipment and build it. There's, there's no middleman associated with that type of work. That's what attracted me up here. Now, from a family choice, this became really interesting because Ranson is a sister city to historic Charlestown, which was founded by the Washington family. From City Hall, we're at the southern end of Ranson. And the urban, the built urban realm goes about two miles north, and Charlestown goes about two miles south. So when I started to look at where I wanted to live, I knew that between these two towns, I could find a home that was within two miles, so very bikeable or walkable to City Hall. And when I started to look at where we were at, it's, this is probably one of the most friendliest towns I've ever been in my life that front porch culture that many of us that when you read about urbanism, you say you built the front porch and people live on it. And we try to replicate that in the suburbs and this town, people actually eat dinner on their front porch. They spend the evenings on the front porch. You can't walk by their house without them saying hello. All of those things. When I looked at this town, the projects, the philosophies, the culture, the, the people were all very supportive of it, exactly where I wanted to be and the things that I wanted to do. Now, the title of the job is kind of interesting because I, I actually sit over top of the community development department. So I deal with code enforcement, development review, and the building department. The town council, the city manager, they see the planning component of the city as the key to the fiscal health. So the planning decisions that we make in the city are going to lead to the success or failures of the city 10 years down the road or even the next generation. So the specific position has the title of assistant city manager just to add that extra bit of weight behind it. So that when we're at the table that If the city manager isn't there, then they at least know that there's a title and somebody at the city in the structure that, that this is critical and these are things that are important. And I mean, that helps. That helps when we meet with investors to know that their project coming to our city is important. And when we have to have the hard discussions about that maybe the form of the development doesn't match our code, they know that this is coming from somebody that has the ability to assist them through that process.
0: Are you aware that there's a presidential election going on?
1: I've heard a bit about that. <laughs> we, don't get, we don't hear much about that, even though DC's around the corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, know, it's not like we're a coal state or anything.
0: Hillary Clinton has you know, very detailed policy proposals on her website. She has a, a huge infrastructure plan that is proposing to spend hundreds of billions. It was kind of re-released this summer. In, you know, a a rollout to here's my plan to invest in our nation's infrastructure. And the next day, Donald Trump comes out and says, well, you know, take whatever she's planning to do it and double it. And that's that's what we'll need. It seems clear listening to economists, listening to people running for office at at all points uh, of the spectrum and in all levels that there's this general consensus that Washington, D.C. needs to spend a lot more on infrastructure. I just want you to react to the idea that we should have some type of surge in, in infrastructure spending. As the assistant city manager there in a small town in West Virginia, what, how do you react to people saying, we need a huge amount of money spent on infrastructure today?
1: From the perspective of the city, the first question I is, where do I sign up Yeah, and what do I need to do to apply?
0: Right. Okay. So from
1: a city management side, I mean, if the funding is available our city will pursue it we we have received and been beneficiaries as a city of a lot of money when obama came in and there was a lot of the stimulus money that came through the city received a 13 million dollar stimulus grant that we partnered with our with charlestown to build a roadway it's a state of the art central boulevard through our community we've sought federal money that's assisted with getting our codes updated and updating our comprehensive plan our city's also been very active in the brownfields development side so we've received lots of money to clean up sites and and lead you know use that for redevelopment the city with all these programs we're spending less than 20 cents on the dollar for that so it's very exciting for us as a city. We're fortunate that we have leadership at the city and we have a city manager that is not willing to chase after the money that's this promissory or that obligates the city to some of these long-term components. That these projects are real, that we're pursuing, that they're increasing quality of life and we'll see a return on investment. But it's easy to get caught up with free money when it comes to the federal government and the city's happy to grab it. Some of the issues we're dealing with in West Virginia is that West Virginia is, unfortunately, on all the scales, we're either the 48th or 49th on on so many things. So the state is reliant on a lot of federal funding. Now, the eastern panhill where I'm at, we see a steady growth rate. For example, within our region, I have 3% unemployment. I have some of the highest job participation rates in the country. We're seeing at least 1,000 jobs available any one time within the Eastern Panhandle that are open and ready for people to apply for. So we have a real shortage of employees within this area. When it comes to these projects, there are things that we need in the community or that we're obligated to build within the community that there's no way a town of less than 5,000 people can fund. I've got a lot of federal mandates. One of them right now is stormwater. We are in an area that's threatened to be labeled as an MS4, which requires us to have a lot of water quality components. So in a town that was founded in 1910 and built out the central area, prior to any land development regulations, any, any environmental regulations, I now have to manage stormwater within the city. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars to accomplish that. So we need help. There's no way that we, we could do that on our own based off of federal and state obligations that have been put on us.
0: If the money is being spent out of D.C., I'd like you to talk a little bit about what kind of projects it should fund and kind of as a corollary to that, what kind of projects it should not fund from your vantage point at the local level. uh, If you see this money being distributed down to your city and other cities or to states or what have you, how should that go down and and what kind of things should be eligible and and what shouldn't be?
1: Yeah, so. One of the things that would have been helpful, I think, in the 2008 stimulus and the following stimulus packages is actually have the money bypass the states and actually go directly to cities because cities are a do or die with elections and with projects. If the money goes to the state, the state knows how to spend it on a major highway or major regional system that has minimal neighborhood impact. So, from the city standpoint, reinvesting into your urban areas is critical because I have lots of crumbling infrastructure that's here. The funding, this idea of shovel ready is also, there's some complexities to that. And I think that everybody learned how to make every project shovel ready. And that's just checking the right boxes on a piece of paper the traditional standard of getting projects completed, a lot of city projects take a lot of time to get approved. Just on a roadway project, if I was a private developer and I wanted to build a new roadway through my subdivision, it would take my engineers and my surveyors and all my professionals four to six months to develop all the drawings that needed to be done to construct these components. And then another three or four months to get all the state and local permits. So from the idea of having a road to actually having the construction drawings prepared to do the road, it's one year. Super expedited processing. So when we see this money come through, a lot of these projects just get delayed and bogged down because they they aren't right. Or the idea of shovel ready gets manipulated in a way to make it on paper work that way. So trying to get money down to the, the local level, we don't have to see as big of chunks of money coming down to the local level. It's not like a town needs $400 million. There's a lot of projects that can be done on smaller scale, smaller chunks. The amount of paperwork for a lot of these, every time that we deal with a federal project, conceivably you have 40 to 50% of whatever's involved in that grant award is put into the federal obligation reporting For that money. So it's important to report and be honest about where the money's going and how it's being used, but recognize there's an enormous amount of cost for all that reporting. Many times that's being done by outside consultant groups. So there's a lot of of that process that if we could get the thresholds less, maybe the money's less, we really could do a lot with less, believe it or not
0: if you were advising congress let's say you're called to testify in january and you know advise a, a presidential transition team and there's a surge in infrastructure spending planned and it's going to kind of go the way you're you're suggesting it goes money directly to cities small amounts spread over a large area what what kind of strings should be attached to that like what what should the expectations of taxpayers and policymakers be with the distribution of that money?
1: Yeah, the the types of projects that we should be looking at are projects that look at streets, and whether you want to call it complete streets, the types of projects that are really most successful for infill and existing communities are ones that you take the entire cross-section of a roadway. That's starting with the aerial wires above it, you go down to the surface level of where there may be landscaping, sidewalks, asphalt, parking, bike lanes, whatever those pieces are based off of your community, and then underneath the road, dealing with the storm water, the sewer pipes, the water pipes, underground utilities, all those pieces. So looking at that cross-section, and there's multiple groups out there that advocate for all of these pieces. When it comes to the width of the roadway, working with your current constraints. So not expanding out the right-of-way, not having to grab another 30 feet so that you can add a dedicated bike lane or additional turn lanes or whatever the the wish list is on those pieces. So working within those constraints, that's something that's important. Under the a lot of the Tiger grants. That was all about multimodal transportation. So you see all the TIGER grant applications and the awardees of that where they had all different types of super innovative multimodal complete street components. So every one of those has sharrows or bike lanes or trails and wide sidewalks. Those things are great and there's a lot of places where those are necessary. But there's a lot of hidden things under the road that I don't think citizens know about. I don't think politicians, they don't really have the appetite to pay for because a new sewer line or a new stormwater line doesn't make a pretty ribbon-cutting. But it's that cross-section is what needs to be looked at. And as these point systems go in, there really has to be, just like with the, the current administration's Tiger application, future federal infrastructure dollars need to look at that whole cross-section and require multi-fields, multi-governmental agencies within those cross-sections to all be working together as we do these projects. And, And stormwater, public drinking water, and sewage are the big things that are underneath the streets that our communities... I mean, many of these lines in some of these communities are 100 years old. And the technologies, the materials, the capacities have all changed. And some of that's with federal regulation, some of that's just with time and learning.
0: I'd like you to think of what like, the one biggest project you might have would be. In terms of like a dollar amount, would it be a a $5 million project, a $10 million project? Would it be the the $100 million of of storm sewer that you've got to work on? Let's have that dollar amount in your head. And and let's say you got your hands on that dollar amount. Like that that was given to you without any strings attached. What do you think you'd do with it? Do you you think you would do the one project? Or do you think that that there'd be some other push to do something else?
1: So... In our city, our public works department and the people we work with in the city, the great thing about West Virginia is that all the folks of West Virginia are extremely resourceful. So my public works department will make sure whatever they have will last until the point that it turns to dust. They can stretch every piece of equipment they have to the very last moment is no longer viable. So in our city, if we receive that type of influx on a project, we have several large-scale conceptual projects that need to be undertaken. And the way that we're designing these things is to look at the large scale. Like, for example, in our city, I have a north-south and an east-west corridor that we've identified all the stormwater for the city run to. And within those corridors... We're working to make the necessary improvements to accommodate that as a master stormwater system through the city. And everything's going to feed to those, and it'll treat and transfer and move all of that stormwater through. With those monies, we will stretch those to do as much of that project as possible. So we know it's a multi-million dollar project. We know that there's work we can do. There's you know there's work that we have to hire outside people to do but we will start with that big plan. With more money, you you can move through that process faster. But those are the types of projects you'll see us move on in our city with, with those funds. If the money comes through, it may just pay for the hard cost of buying the material, the pipes, the new asphalt, the concrete, and we would use our own staff to labor and make it happen. And with a city this size, We're not looking for a freeway interchange. We're not looking for uh, a new big intersection. These are really basic master stormwater systems. We've got some utility upgrades on roads that are 100 years old, that through the cross section, we're, we're gonna have to cut them, we're gonna have to realign them, and we'll invest that money into those projects.
0: Do you have any misgivings about the idea of a federal surge in infrastructure spending? Are there any shortcomings that you see? And and I guess in kind of the context of that, how would we deal with those shortcomings? Is there anything that gives you pause about this whole approach?
1: So from the perspective of the city, we would be advocating for as much money coming out of the federal coffers into local communities from the position of the city, That's what we'd be pushing for. From my experience, and what my concerns are, is that that money goes out to the folks that are able to move the fastest within the current structure. So whoever has NEPA done, whoever has the engineering done, whoever the largest organization within a state, those are the folks that all have that money. And the elected officials supporting those positions – have dedicated at times hundreds of millions of dollars in the, the engineering and the approvals of projects that may have been a good idea 25 years ago and just now they're available. So my concern is, is that if there's a huge influx of money, it's going to go to the places that can absorb it the fastest and the largest chunks of it will go to those projects. So my concern is it would be an investment that we would not see a return on. So it would be the new freeway through an area of the state that doesn't need a freeway. In West Virginia, one of the things that has been discussed, and it's I'm only saying it because I'm not from here, but there are parts of West Virginia, there are multiple counties, that the population has dropped so much and the cost to operate the counties are so much, there are three or four counties that may have to merge. And they have zero growth. Well, those are areas that, if somebody comes in with two or three hundred million for stimulus dollars to build an interchange or a freeway, make a lot of sense in the short term, because it creates construction jobs. It's easily administratable. It's something that the state knows how to do but it's in an area where there's zero potential for economic development within the next five to ten years. Because you may have the interchange there, but you don't have the land. Or you have the interchange, you may have the land, but you don't have the water and sewer to support any infrastructure. Or you don't have housing there. So those are the types of things. Investing in that stuff is a concern. But also seeing things go to like some of the major cities that already have, you know, some of the doubling up on the infrastructure they may already have or have the ability to get funding for. So doubling up on the mass transit that we don't have here. That's also some of the other stuff that I would have concern on spending just to spend.
0: If we go back to Florida for a second, I know one of the things that was perplexing to me when I was there. Uh, was how you know, you and your team would struggle to do really basic things to 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 find the money to do very obvious things you know we have a we have a neighborhood here uh, we have a store here boy, it would be nice to have a, a crosswalk uh, so people could get to the store yet the county was building i don 't know how many redundant bridges that were funded through like disaster mitigation funds. Uh, from the federal government in in the context of that, how would you look at this kind of infrastructure surge? because it, it seems to me like and maybe you just alluded to a little bit that the four hundred million dollars for the big bridge is a pretty easy streamlined project to do, but you know four hundred million dollar projects can al- almost be like a bureaucratic nightmare, even though it would be vastly more effective.
1: Yeah, well, let's take, for example, like some of these projects like Safe Routes to Schools. I-, I love the program, the idea of it's great, but a lot of those projects, you have to get to a certain threshold, you have to spend $600,000 before you're eligible for some of those programs. And we know that when we start to look at schools and neighborhoods, you may only have $50,000 or even $15,000 in paint that needs to be put on the ground to make the walking to school safe, but you're not eligible for that. And you could, you could never afford to administer a grant that small, you know, by the time you check all the boxes and that that's part of it. Like Ranson, we, when it comes to federal disaster, we have an entire neighborhood within a floodplain The delineation of the floodplain is done at the federal level the administration of the management of the floodplain is done at the local level. There's no funding for that. Nobody nobody pays the city. Once the federal government expands the boundary of the floodplain, we don't see any revenue come in to assist with the staffing to manage that area. There is no funding until the entire neighborhood floods, again, for us to come in and do any mitigation within those neighborhoods to prevent Flooding. And even some of that mitigation, it's not going to be the large scale. You know, we're not dealing with the Mississippi. I'm dealing with a creek that backs up in a major rainstorm. So there are some smaller scale projects that probably could be done. There's probably some flood mitigation projects that could be done on private properties that could be done to eliminate their risk for damage in the event of a flood. When you're a local government and you walk the streets, you get to know the neighbors. You experience the situations. You live those things every day, and you can easily see where where these little projects need to be done. You can see where the sidewalk's cracked. You can see where the kids have to walk across an empty field to get to the school. You can see where the water puddles up. And you you get those calls. And there's a lot of those little projects that need to be done to resolve those issues. All those little projects add up. And unfortunately, there's no funding source except for local taxpayers out of the local tax bill to pay for those repairs. And they, they do add up. I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars a year in these small improvement projects citywide. And the funding sources, again, based off of the level of administration, it's difficult to do. If we received a large sum of money for a grant, there are ways for us to reallocate staff and funding within our budgets to move things up so that what we had budgeted for to pay to do a certain project, we now have a federal stimulus to support I can move some of that funding now to the other smaller projects and back feed within the budget. It's tough. It's really tough to work at that, the stimulus money coming through at the neighborhood level. I don't know if there is a way to allow for these small scale pieces. And there's plenty of ways for us to do reporting on that. That if I work on a stormwater project that may be a street, I can run the numbers of what the nutrient loading reduction is, the gallons of water saved, the amount of pavement I've reduced. But it needs to be in a way that at the local level, a small town can plug into that and be competitive. I mean, West Virginia is 1.8 million people. So all the people that listen to the podcast, there's a large part of this audience that lives in a town that is that scale or even in a county that has that population and we're talking about an entire state. So it makes it it makes it tough for smaller states of with the issues we're dealing with here and even small towns to compete on some of these levels. And I feel bad. I mean, when I when I look at what it really costs by the time you know we take the money goes off my I send it every year off my federal tax return to Washington, D.C. And by the time it churns through all the various departments, which are great people, I work with all those people, and it funds through all the systems, and then it channels back to the local government, a large amount of that funding has been allocated out for enormous bureaucratic supportive staff. And then all the reporting we have to do at the local level to pay back for it, it's really pennies on the dollar that comes back to our area.
0: Right. Edward Erfurt, the system manager of Ranson, West Virginia. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Ed.
1: I appreciate it, and I encourage everybody if you want to learn more about Ranson, check out our website, and you can also see the planning we did in 2012 at RansonRenewed.com.
0: I'll put a link up on the page. You have some exciting life changes coming soon. Uh your wife has been on the podcast recently because she is one of my coworkers here at Strong Towns and does an amazing job lining up our events and helping people get connected to our movement um but she is going to be taking some time off here very soon uh through the end of the year because you guys are expecting uh, another another uh, little baby
1: we are we're very excited we're going to have a second boy so we're looking at bunk beds
0: <laughs> uh boys love bunk beds as the father of two girls but coming from a family of boys i spent the weekend this weekend with the slumber party which for like the 12-year-old that's the that's the <laughs> thing you do now so we had eight little girls in our house you know my my two daughters and then six uh guests and uh, that was quite a crazy fun time. I think the little girls' slumber party may be a little bit easier someday than what you're going to have to deal with.
1: I married into a whole bunch of nephews. So my first holiday with them, their slumber party involved the basement and it must have been 25 Nerf guns. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> Yeah. That was, that was my growing up too. It was like, you, you couldn't have a, you couldn't have a good sleepover unless somebody got hurt bad, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, <laughs> there's tears and you try to check to see what's wrong. And yeah. no, nothing's wrong. Yeah. Just Leave us alone. We've, we've, we've self-regulated. Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> All right. You take care my friend. Thanks so much.
1: All right. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chuck.
0: Yep. Bye-bye. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at StrongTowns.org. Drasty times require what?
1: Drastic measures yes! Who said that?
0: They know that America's one big pothole right now.
1: Bill, 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 Bill. That's a start. Dr. Marone, this has been fascinating. Who oh, made city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.